0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malih Razazan. This week, we continue our coverage of the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq by bringing back a conversation we had with Iraqi novelist and scholar Sinan Antoon in 2014. But first, we speak with Bruce Whitehouse, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Lehigh University, about his recent article, on the illicit flow of gold from Mali to Dubai. Stay with us. Over the past decade, Mali's capital, Bamako has become the regional hub for illicit precious metal transshipment from West Africa to the Persian Gulf. In a recent article published in the Middle East Research and Information Project titled Illicit flows to the UAE takes the shine of African gold. Professor Bruce Whitehouse, who is our guest today, writes, Now approaching 70 tons annually, gold has replaced cotton as Mali's leading export, turning the country into Africa's third largest gold producer. The primary destination of artisanal gold seems to be the United Arab Emirates. By all evidence, the gold that shines in the souks of Dubai is the product of a complex web of criminal networks, terrorist groups, and internationally sanctioned regimes who use this non-industrially mined gold to launder money. The Emirates have long been a global hub for transnational African merchants who travel to Dubai to purchase imported goods such as Japanese-made auto parts or Chinese-made garments. Emirati authorities and commercial players are now exploiting their country's existing commercial status to make the United Arab Emirates an important node for the trade in precious metals, especially gold. These buyers are actively financing associates in Mali and throughout the Sahel and Sahara regions, driving the expansion of artisanal mining in new areas. Bruce Whitehouse is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Lehigh University. His work and research have concentrated on post-colonial sub-Saharan Africa, anthropological demography, development with a special emphasis on transnational migration. I spoke with him about the reasons why Mali is emerging as the main production hub for Sahelian countries and why Dubai is the number one destination for artisanal gold trade.
1: Mali has a long history of gold production going back more than a thousand years and the mines where gold is being produced now, are all over the country. Some of them are in the far south, some of them are in the far west. In terms of the industrial mines that are being operated by big transnational mining corporations, they're mostly clustered in the south and west of the country. But in terms of the artisanal mines, so these are the smaller scale mines that generally use a lot less heavy equipment. They're not overseen by multinational corporations, but they can still be very large-scale operations. Those are in many areas of the country. They're in some of the same zones as the industrial mines in the South and West, for example, but some of them are also in the far North of the country, up near the Sahara Desert. So the distribution of these mines is pretty broad throughout national territory. In terms of the most important industrial ones, there's only about a dozen sites which are, as I mentioned, clustered in the south and west of Mali. In terms of the artisanal mines, they are scattered all over the country.
0: The southern and the western part of the country is in the government's control, and the northern part is controlled by a mesh of different groups. Can you give us a sense of the political landscape and how does that relate to the concentration of gold mines?
1: Well, the central government of Mali has pretty firm control over the southern and western portions of its territory. Its control gets much weaker the farther north you go. So the central region's government presence has been contested in many communities. And once you get into the north, the government has very tenuous control outside of the major cities. So, it's in these areas, particularly in the north, where various militias and armed groups operate and where the Malian armed forces have much less presence. They've been starting to reassert themselves over the past years in some of these areas, but for the most part, the northern half of Malian territory has been dominated by various armed groups, some of them affiliated with Al Qaeda, some of them affiliated with the Islamic State, some of them affiliated with ethno-nationalist groups, some of them just kind of private militias. And then of course, we have to mention the the French military was there until recently. They had a long presence in the region, and the United Nations has a peacekeeping force operating in in the north of Mali. So all these different groups are there. The gold mines that are in the northern part of the country mostly seem to be operating outside of government control or oversight. So what revenues are being collected, from those mines, and these will be artisanal rather than industrial mines. Those revenues go maybe to local leaders and political figures, but then they also go to pay off these militias for protection. And in many cases, they help finance transnational organized crime.
0: Mali is not just a hub for illegal gold mining, but it has become also a trade route for other countries where they pass there, go through and take it to Dubai, which we'll talk about later. There are 350 legal mines in Mali, which are mostly concentrated in the west and then the south. But as you said, there are hundreds of artisanal gold mines in the northern part of Mali. Who controls these mines? Are there specific militia groups or extremist groups or it's a looser network of uh, players?
1: So I would say that players form fairly loose and dynamic networks. In the case of one a very large artisanal mine in the north called Intahaka, we know that it falls outside the control of the central government, but we also know that various armed groups, some of which contest the presence and sovereignty of the central government in that region are operating around the mining areas that they charge basically protection to the miners and that they take a cut of the revenue from the sale of gold from that mine. So in many cases, we don't know specifically which groups. In the case of some of the mines like Intahaka that I mentioned, it seems to be the sort of local secular separatist militia that has the most control, but it varies from one site to another. And because these groups are contesting, competing with each other for territory, one week an artisanal mine might be paying protection to one militia group and, and the following week they'll be paying to a different group.
0: How has the political crisis in Mali impacted the illicit gold mining production?
1: The conflict that is underway in Mali, particularly in the central and northern regions of the country, is not fundamentally about gold or minerals in general. When it erupted about 11 years ago, I think it was really a conflict about governance and the question of who is going to be loyal to this central regime in Bamako, in the capital city. Since independence in the 1960s, there's been a, a long history of separatist movements in northern Mali. So when the, the conflict broke out in 2012, mining activity was not very extensive in the northern part of the country. And actually, the conditions of the conflict itself, the insecurity, the, the lack of central government presence, has sort of opened up a space in which the artisanal miners can operate and in which these different militia groups can profit from the mines. So by this year, 2023, I think we're starting to see the minerals themselves, the mines themselves, playing a larger role as sort of drivers of conflict, that armed groups are contesting different territories and and wanting to assert control so that they can harness the revenues from the mines.
0: It's also easy money.
1: It's easy money for them, and it it fits in with the already well-established networks of, of smuggling, in some cases, narcotic smuggling, but in some cases, it's just the smuggling of foodstuffs or gasoline or diesel fuel. Arms trafficking as well operates through the region. So the same networks that control those smuggling routes can assert their control over the mines and over the minerals that come from them.
0: Professor Whitehouse, the current military junta in Mali has aligned itself with Russia, and there are reports that thousands of private um, mercenary army from Wagner groups are present in Mali. There have been many examples of Wagner group operating in different African countries, and they have used illicit minerals and mines to profit from. Is gold a factor here? What do we know about the role of Wagner group? And Russia?
1: That's a great question. We don't know a lot. There's been a, a great deal of speculation about what the Wagner Group might be getting in return for the Malian government allowing them to operate on its territory. And I should specify the Malian government has denied the presence of the Wagner Group in Mali. They say, no, these Russian troops are here for bilateral training and they're instructing our armed forces, but we don't know anything about the Wagner Group. So we don't have any official figures or statements that tell us what Wagner might be interested in in Mali but we know from its operations in the Central African Republic and a different region of Africa that they have taken control of some mining interests there and used those mines to help bankroll their own operations and, and send the revenues back to Moscow. Obviously when the Russian government is under severe regime of international sanctions. If they're able to generate money abroad in places like Central African Republic or Mali or Sudan or Libya, where they're also believed to be operating, that helps out the Russian government.
0: As you said, the central government in Mali has not acknowledged the presence of these private mercenaries. But in Mali, in the central and western part of Mali. People call them the white soldiers because they have raided homes. There are several reports by Amnesty International, by the Human Rights Watch of killing of civilians. It's a mercenary. The U.S. government
1: has alleged that the Malian government is paying, I think it's the equivalent of about $10 million a month for Wagner's services.
0: But I read that they haven't paid them fully and they owe them money. All
1: of this is speculation because the Malian government does not admit that Wagner is even there. They claim that they're just uh, Russian government instructors that they're working with. So we have a number of claims about who's really there and how they're getting paid. I think it's quite likely that they are getting compensated by the Malian state and that they're interested at the very least in acquiring some control over gold and possibly other minerals. In Malian territory. But I'd say it's too early to say mining activities they might already be involved in.
0: According to a France 24 investigation, workers who are gold diggers in northern part of Mali come from several countries, including Syria and Libya. How do Syrian workers end up in Mali?
1: That's not actually something that I'm familiar with, the Syrians in particular. But I know that All the gold mines on Malian territory, whether they're big industrial operations or smaller artisanal ones, they tend to attract migrants from throughout the region, generally from neighboring West African countries, but from North African countries as well. Gold mining for a long time in Mali has been seen as attractive work for young men, and there's a very young population in in West Africa and and, uh, not a lot of jobs for them. So within the region, within West Africa, within the Sahel, I would say that gold mines play a very visible role in attracting migrant workers across borders. And part of the reason that gold has been flowing out of these mines across Mali's borders and, and really escaping the notice and control and taxation by central government authorities is that the migrants themselves have played a role in in building these transnational networks that have been informally trading the gold that comes out of Mali's mines and taking it out of the country to sell elsewhere. And in many cases, they take it to the United Arab Emirates.
0: So let's talk about that. What does this supply chain look like? And how does gold from these mines end up in Dubai? First off, why Mali has become such an attractive hub for illegal gold trade? And then How does it move from there to Dubai?
1: First of all, I'll talk about the how, and then I'll talk about the why. We know that these kind of informal gold traders, you could call them smugglers. I prefer to call them informal gold traders. They get on airplanes at the airport in, in Bamako, in Mali's capital, with gold bars in their luggage. And either they're escaping the notice of Malian authorities who are supposed to be taxing this gold when it's being exported out of the country and and recording the amounts, or they're paying them off and leaving the country with it. But either way, the United Arab Emirates has a very liberal policy for gold coming into the country. People can bring a certain allowance of gold in their hand luggage into the airport in Dubai with no questions asked and no documentation required and no taxes to be paid on it.
0: Mali applies export taxes to only the first 50 kilogram of gold exported per month?
1: That's right. But I suspect that very few people who are bringing gold out of Mali are actually even paying those taxes. The central government has struggled to assert its control and enforce the existing regulations that it has on the artisanal mining sector in Mali. But once the gold reaches Dubai, then at least it seems to be recorded. And we have official trade figures coming from the UAE that show a massive amount of gold recorded as coming from Mali. In 2021, for example, Dubai reported 174 tons of gold coming into the country from Mali. And by comparison, you mentioned the the official production of gold in Mali was recently estimated around 65 to 70 tons. More than twice the official production is showing up in Dubai and being reported as having come from Mali. So that raises some concerns.
0: So basically, someone can get on the plane in Bamako, pay $500 for a plane ticket, and go to Dubai. No question asked, you only have to show a paper, which can be also falsified about the source of the gold bar, mm. and then you can go and sell it in the open market. Is that how it works in that's Dubai? That's
1: right. That's right. And particularly when the gold is, and mo- most of this gold, probably all of the gold that's going to Dubai is coming from artisanal mines, which means it mm. hasn't been industrially processed. And in some cases, it might still contain some impurities. Once it makes its way into the gold markets in Dubai, Local buyers will melt it down and refine it. And in many cases, the impurities are other precious metals. It might be platinum, for example. It might be silver. The buyers in Dubai get to keep those trace elements for themselves. So it adds to their profits and uh, gives them an incentive to specifically look for gold coming through these informal export networks from Mali. So
0: illegally obtained gold from Mali can be used as a means to money laundering as it requires no verification, no question asked at the time of buying or selling, and the documents could be falsified. As you write in your article, By all evidence, the gold that shines in the souks of Dubai is the product of a complex web of criminal networks, terrorist groups, and internationally sanctioned regimes who use this artisanally mined gold to launder their money. You also know that reports of money laundering in the United Arab Emirates have proliferated.
1: Exactly. And of course, we don't have official figures saying which armed groups or criminal gangs were the sources of gold or which groups managed to extract some protection money from the gold that's coming out of, of the country. We don't know how much money they might be making from it, but... Mm-hmm. We know based on the conditions of insecurity and competition between multiple armed groups in the northern half of Mali, we know that these groups are involved in the transnational trade of gold. And it stands to reason that not only Islamist terrorist groups, but also organized criminal groups that are also involved in narcotics trafficking and human trafficking have been extracting their cut of the proceeds from this mining activity.
0: We should mention that Mali also acts as a gateway. The gold that ends up in Dubai, it's not just the Malian gold. I've read that countries like Venezuela, Libya, and also according to France 24 investigation, it can come from South Africa, from ivory Coast, from Niger, From Burkina Faso. So, because of lax regulations, Mali is West Africa's hub for illegal gold trade with Dubai.
1: Exactly. Yes. So, I mentioned that 174 tons of gold that the United Arab Emirates recorded in 2021 as having come from Mali. It's quite likely that a substantial portion of that gold actually originated in other countries, some of which you mentioned, many of Mali's neighbors, Guinea, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Burkina Faso also have artisanal gold mines. And it seems that the kind of permissive regulatory environment in Mali has attracted gold exporters, informal gold exporters from those countries to to do business in Bamako, to bring their gold across the border, and then to transship it from there into the UAE.
0: A few years ago, there were reports about Turkey sending gold bars to Iran via Dubai. So Dubai has become a hub hub for international illicit and illegal gold trading.
1: Exactly. And we know that gold originating in other conflict zones like Sudan, like Libya, like the Democratic Republic of Congo has uh, increasingly been finding its way to the gold markets of Dubai. So Mali is by no means alone in this situation.
0: What other countries in the Middle East or forces are using this route to move gold from Mali to Dubai? Who else is benefiting from this?
1: We just have some reports from journalists and from NGOs that have made these claims about, for example, Venezuelan or Libyan gold being transshipped through through Bamako. Of course, the Malian government isn't saying anything about it. But I think given the very many armed groups that are acting on Malian territory, we have every reason to believe that they're involved in this trade as well, including some of the most violent Islamist groups like Islamic State. So this is definitely concerning for for governments in the region and all over the world.
0: Mali has very lax regulations, but there is also a lot of corruption in Mali. How much of this illegal trafficking of gold is also beneficial to political and economic elites in Mali?
1: I don't think that these informal export networks would be allowed to function in Bamako. And and in many cases, they're doing it right out in the open. The press reports that you talked about, the journalists didn't have to look very hard to find these operations. It's It's been an open secret for a long time in Mali that these networks exist and that they're doing good business. And it's quite reasonable to assume that political elites in Bamako have been profiting from their activities and essentially being paid to look the other way while all of this gold is being taken out of the country. It would be a wonderful thing if Mali, which, you know, under the, the current military government, they've been talking a great deal about regaining the sovereignty that they've lost over the years to neo colonial influences. But at the same time, They've lost a great deal of their resources and are continuing to lose a great deal of Mali's resources to these informal networks. If the gold that Dubai is reported as having imported from Mali were actually being taxed in Mali at the same rate that the industrial gold operations are being taxed, Mali would essentially be able to double its budget at the national level. And this is a poor country. This is an under-resourced government that is chronically unable to invest in basic services like health and education, it would be a wonderful thing for the central government to have these resources to invest. But then the question is, are the institutions of the central government strong enough to enforce the law and to extract its share of these resources from the export networks? And so far, I'd say the answer has to be no. They have been either unable or unwilling to do that.
0: Can you tell us what happens when gold bars end up in um, Dubai. They have refineries there, as you said. They refine the gold, and they separate other minerals and metals from it, and they turn it into pure gold. What Mm -hmm. happens then? Is Dubai also an international hub for gold trade, where they send it to other countries, and maybe it ends up in Europe, in the United States?
1: Absolutely. Buyers from all over the world go to Dubai looking for gold. And in some cases, it's small level purchases of, of jewelry, but in some cases they're buying bars by the kilo. So just as Bamako has become a kind of regional hub in informal export networks of gold, I would say Dubai has become the global hub for the buying and selling of gold. And it's it's more than just a kind of Middle Eastern market for gold it's become probably the number one place to go if you're looking to buy or sell gold
0: what are the rules and regulations for gold trading in dubai
1: we know that the united arab emirates have fairly lax regulations on the gold sector and that seems to be the main reason why it's become such a a booming global hub the government of the uae hasn't shown much interest in, for example, asking importers to show more documentation of where their gold is coming from, hasn't shown much interest in charging duties on those imports. They want that market to be vibrant, and and they've decided to take a very hands-off approach to it. But of course, what that means is that gold coming from dubious sources and having profited, dubious organizations, tends to find its way to those gold markets in Dubai.
0: According to reports I've seen, there are 4,000 companies operating in gold trade in United Arab Emirates.
1: I think that's a very plausible figure.
0: So what happens to the gold that is produced through legal means, by industrial mining, by those 350 multinational companies that are operating in Mali?
1: There's only about a dozen industrial sites in Mali and somewhat fewer, maybe half a dozen multinational mining corporations that are operating in Mali. But the industrial production of gold from Mali, and I think this is true in most other countries in Africa, that industrial gold generally doesn't go to the UAE. It generally goes to Switzerland or in some cases, South Africa or some other places Switzerland, in particular, has very tight controls over and tracking of the gold that comes into the country. Their trade figures for the gold that they've imported from Mali almost exactly match the trade figures that the Malian government has reported exporting to Switzerland. So there doesn't seem to be the same sort of disparity in that transnational commerce and in industrially produced gold that we see in the artisanal gold that's going to the UAE. So. The big mining companies are rooting their gold generally from Mali into Switzerland, but it's the gold coming from the the smaller scale, the artisanal mines, that's heading to the UAE. And one
0: important issue that we haven't talked about is the plight of workers, people Mm who work in these artisanal mines. Can you uh, give us a picture of what it's like to work at one of these mines? How much money do they earn?
1: The diggers who are the ones actually in the holes in the ground, often working with, with hand tools to dig these mines, at best, they might be able to make a few hundred dollars a month, which is not bad within the, the context of that labor market in, in West Africa. But they're also working under very difficult and dangerous conditions. The mine shafts collapse all the time. We regularly hear about people being buried alive in artisanal gold mines in Mali and Burkina Faso and elsewhere in the region. So there's that aspect of of safety that's a real problem in the artisanal mining sector. And because the government has so little control over the sector, they're in no position to come in and demand higher safety standards or demand that the mines be operated more safely. These mines generally operate outside of government oversight. So it's a high-risk venture for the workers, and and they know when they go down into the ground that uh, there's a chance they might never make it out, but they see the potential payoff, those few hundred dollars a month, as being worth the risk.
0: Artisanal gold miners mostly use mercury and cyanide to separate gold from other minerals mm. and according to Institute for Security Studies these chemicals are smuggled into Mali from Benin Togo Burkina Faso Senegal through illicit trafficking routes so that also has become an illegal trade by itself and the Malian government estimates 33 tons of mercury enter the country illegally every year there was a report by Mango Bay last year that about 72% of gold miners in Cameroon are poisoned with mercury at artisanal mining sites. Can you tell us more about the health and environmental impacts of chemicals used in gold mining in Mali?
1: Well, it's very alarming. and And of course, it's not just the workers who are exposed. It's people in the communities adjacent to these mines. It's people who drink water from the rivers that run through the mining zones. I think there's a real hazard of, and this isn't just in Mali, but throughout the region in West Africa, as you mentioned, there's a real danger of rivers and water sources becoming permanently undrinkable from the toxicity, the toxic after effects of this gold mining operation. So the health of whole communities is really at risk. And It's kind of emblematic of the whole mining operation where everything seems to be focused on the generation of quick profits. And with little thought of investing in the long term, whether we're talking about the health of the workers or the health of the communities or the the financial resources of central governments, they just get left out of the picture and, and everything's concentrated on making those quick sales. So I think we need to think about the impact of artisanal gold mining on Malian communities in in two terms. One is the environmental impact that we've talked about and the toxicity from mercury and cyanide that's used to process the gold. Also just the disruption to the landscape, the digging up of huge swaths of, of territory, the sediment that goes into streams and rivers. I mean, there's a significant environmental component, but then there's also the social component, which is the young people, predominantly young people who are attracted to these mines, who leave their predominantly rural communities in Mali and throughout the region to go work at the mines. And in many cases, farms don't have enough labor to harvest their crops or or to till their fields because the young men have gone off to the mines to seek their fortunes. So I think there's a double impact, environmental and social, that we need to be concerned about.
0: You write in your piece, the same forces that are transforming Mali into a hub for the gold trade are ensuring this peripheral country straddling the Sahara and Sahel regions remains precarious in the global economy. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Sure. This has to do with the inability of the government or the unwillingness of central government authorities to establish tighter control over these artisanal mines. So that means not only their inability to step in and enforce higher safety standards and, and protection for the environment and preventing those toxic chemicals from finding their way into rivers, but it also has to do with the ability of the central government itself to oversee its own economy, to decide what happens with Mali's most precious natural resources. If the resources are being essentially smuggled out of the country, in some cases, under the noses of government officials, it's sapping the ability of the Malian state to deliver basic services, to police its borders, to defend its population. And of course, there's a huge problem of insecurity on Malian territory right now. So I think the informal export of gold from these mines and the transshipment of gold from other destinations or other origin points into Mali and then ultimately on to places like Dubai speaks to the the weakness of the central state. And if Mali should see a more assertive government that was capable of controlling its territory and applying the law uniformly on its territory, I think we would see... A much more efficient use of these resources that the central government would be able to harness revenues from gold production and gold export for the good of the people. It would be able to step in and, and protect its people from environmental threats and from criminal threats and, and the other problems that arise alongside the gold mining industry. But it's the very weakness of the central government in Bamako that has attracted the attention of transnational networks and gold buyers throughout the region and outside of Africa as well. And that weakness then tends to be reinforced as the export of gold continues and intensifies. The authorities of the central government become less and less willing to stick their necks out and try to regulate and tax this sector effectively. So I, I'm not optimistic that the central government is going to take better charge of gold mining on its territory, but, but I'm hopeful that it might happen.
0: Bruce Whitehouse is the Associate Professor of Anthropology at Lehigh University, whose studies and research have concentrated on post-colonial sub-Saharan Africa anthropological demography, development, and especially transnational migration. You can read Professor Whitehouse's article on Middle East Research and Information Project website at Merip.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Thank you. Through the struggles of a single desperate family, Iraqi novelist and poet Sinan Antoun's novel, The Corpse Bosher, shows us the heart of Iraq's complex and violent recent history, descending into the underworld where the borders between life and death are blurred and where there is no refuge from unending nightmares. The protagonist, Jawad, is pressured by his father, a corpse washer, to take over the family job when he's gone. But Jawad has different plans for his life. He wants to become an artist, a sculptor. But growing up during the Iran-Iraq War of the 80s and the invasion of Kuwait in the 90s, he's exhausted by death, wishes to shape his future in other ways. But his future does not pan out as he wishes. I asked Sinan Antoun what inspired him to write his novel, The Corpse Washer.
2: Back in 2004, and this story in the New York Times caught my attention. It was about a corpse washer who had inherited the profession from his family, and he was in his early 30s, and he'd been making so much money because there were so many corpses and now after the occupation and the sectarian violence, but... He was planning to leave the country because he did not want his son to carry on the same profession. So it was just a very powerful story, and to my mind it encapsulated all of the horror of the situation in Iraq. And I kind of knew I had a gut feeling right then that this is going to be... I was writing another novel, but I abandoned that one and started basically... Researching more about this whole profession and its history and its rituals and it seemed to me to be the nucleus of a novel about Iraq
0: your novel is about a father who's a corpse washer and He wants his son to take over the business after he's gone And we'll get to exactly what Javad, who's the protagonist of your novel, goes through and and contradictions and ebbs and flows of his life. How did you manage to write in such details about corpse washing process or ceremony and the mortuary itself?
2: Yes, well, I was just fascinated by the profession itself. And then once I started to read more about it, And I read all these interviews with the Corpse Washers, but also, you know, um, consulted books of Islamic law, which detail everything. And I should say that I was also, I always have this fear that having left Iraq a long time ago, that I want to represent, not that this is a documentary novel, but I want to live... And internalize the characters that I'm writing about. And so I did a lot of reading and did a lot of research, and there is a lot written about it. And there were a number of interviews with the men and women who do this job, and that kind of helped me feel at home in the profession itself almost. And I sometimes jokingly say, if I lose my job, I can almost know how to do this job, even though I've never seen it before my eyes, but there are even recordings on YouTube and so on and so forth.
0: Did you ever think of visiting one?
2: Well, I contacted an Iraqi religious establishment in in New York and told them I was writing something and researching, but, but they never responded. But ultimately, I mean, it would have been great to be able to see it firsthand, but The amazing thing about all of these uh, the literature, even the Islamic law literature, is that it's very detailed and deals with the most intricate details are all recorded. So I thought that was enough considering where I was. I mean, if I were in Iraq, of course, I would go or, or living in any other country. But I'm living in New York.
0: So. Mm. You said this is you studied religious and Islamic uh, laws and the rituals. This is focused on a Shiite a ritual of washing corpses. Yes. Why did you focus on Shiites?
2: When I first read the news, the story was about someone who was working in Najaf, the mm. holy city, where most or the great majority of, of Shiites are buried. But... I wanted my protagonist to be in Baghdad because Baghdad is the city I know so well and then I would be able to deal with the occupation and everything that happened in Baghdad. But then I kept imagining and already did some research and it just so happened that the books that I got out were on Shia Islamic law and so it it wasn't intentional. And you know, there aren't that many major differences between the Shiite rituals and the Sunni rituals, except in some details and mentioning the names of imams. But also because of all of the complexities. I mean, later I thought it was the right choice, because all of the political developments in Iraq and in Iran, and there's a demonization of, of Shiites in mainstream Arab political discourse and elsewhere. So not that this is, was one of my intentions, but I thought a... To humanize a, a Shiite character who happens to be a Shiite and who's born into a Shiite family, and to show the other side of the lives of millions of people who are not necessarily or should not be linked to political militias and political parties that claim to speak for all Shiites.
0: So let's talk about Javad, who is the main character and the narrator of the novel. His father wants him to take over the business from him. He takes Javad. To the morgue to watch and learn the process but he really does not want to walk in his father's footsteps he doesn't want to take over the business what was your main character Javot, inspired by
2: well i mean this is in a way i hate to use the word universal but this is the typical kind of conflict generational conflict Mm -hmm. between a son or a daughter who you know want to go their own way so initially he's fascinated by this world because he holds his father in high esteem, and he kind of knows, even though he doesn't know a lot of the details, that what his father does is something important. But then he has a tendency for art and for drawing, and he fancies himself as someone who will become an artist, and especially when he learns how to draw in school, and he's, you know, inspired by his arts teacher. And then when he, as a teenager, goes into the... Morgue itself, he doesn't like the the horror of death and doesn't like the idea of dealing with with corpses. And in his mind, he wants to deal with life and with reproducing life rather than tending to death. Mm -hmm. But of course, for the father, it's a matter of honor and continuing the family tradition. So that is the beginning of the rift between the two. And it will take Jawad many, many years to kind of come to an understanding of the importance of this, these rituals for people, even though he might not share the religious belief or the faith, but even as a secular person, he comes to the understanding that these rituals are important because they kind of punctuate life and also guard this border between life and death, which is very difficult to comprehend.
0: But at the same time, this is a tale of what Iraq has gone through for the past three decades or so because through Jawad, we get to learn about what people went through during Iran-Iraq war and then what happens during the invasion of Kuwait and the sanctions and the early days of of the invasion of Iraq. In the beginning, Jawad says, in one of his sessions with his father, he says, I was astonished by father's ability to return to the normal rhythm of life so easily each time after he washed, as if nothing had happened, as if he were merely moving from one room to another and leaving death behind, as if death has exited with a coffin and proceeded to the cemetery and life had returned to this place. This is Javad when he's a, young man a kid, his relationship with that place and with death completely changes as he goes through different periods of his life. In the beginning, he doesn't understand how one can live with death. Yes. But as time passes by, he's forced to live with death.
2: Yes, I mean, in a way, I'm, I've always been haunted by this question in general, but particularly in Iraq or in other countries where the weight of history and the successive tragedies of wars and conflicts become almost unbearable, yet human beings, of course, have to somehow muster the courage and the stamina to, to keep going on. And that's one thing that I wanted to focus on, whereby there is no escape and one has to deal with death, and even on a daily basis. And although the situation is, is really abnormal and horrific, human beings have to somehow make it normal. And it's in a way, it's a catastrophe at the same time, but it's one of the, you know, the ways of coping and resisting. And that's why the profession, well, that's why the story attracted me, because also through it one could see because in a way, we all have amnesia or we all kind of have selective memory and try to forget. But for Jawad in his profession, he cannot forget and he sees the, the effects of war and of destruction every day. But also through his own life, through the trajectory of his own life, we in a way get to see the destruction of Iraqi society in the last 35, 40 years. Mm not only by you know external powers of course but by internal powers and by dictatorship so through him i wanted to show the combined effects of dictatorship and of the erosion of society and also how to me he represents the millions of talented and aspiring and hard working human beings for whom it just does not work out there is a ceiling there is a structural ceiling that they cannot transcend no matter how good or hardworking they are. And that's the tragedy of of millions of people on this planet. And Jawad is just one of them.
0: Yeah, because he can never divorce himself from that place. No,
2: because the attachments to his mother and he resists for so long and he studies art and he tries to become an artist. But because of the political context, you know, the sanctions and the the erosion of the economy in Iraq. He cannot make it as an artist, and he's forced to take menial jobs. And then with this last war and invasion, he that's the tragedy, that he is forced to do the very same profession that he tried so hard to escape. So it's not about fate in a way, and there's a place in the novel where where he himself talks about people call it fate, but it's also about how catastrophic history can be for on a collective level, but also on an individual level. Mm.
0: Sinan, does this story, does Jawad in some ways parallel your life growing up in Iraq and living through Iran-Iraq war and then the invasion of Kuwait?
2: Even though I left, but in a way all Iraqis of my generation witnessed all of this. So there is one scene in the novel where you know, Jawad's brother is killed because he was a soldier in the war with Iran and you know this the scene of a of a taxi coming home with a, with a coffin on top covered with a flag that's the the event that so many families feared and this even so everyone was moved by this because it brought back memories and it brought back all these long years of having to deal with death so definitely in that aspect I like many others lived what Joe had lived through that our Lives were marked by war from the age of 11. When we were 11 or 12, uh, the war started with Iran and went on for eight years. And then after three years, there was the invasion of Kuwait and all of that. And there is no escaping how these events marked our lives and how they affected our history. And I sometimes think that had I not been lucky enough to have left in 91, you know, I would have had, had to deal with, in different ways with this catastrophe of, of staying inside and being in a place where as an artist or a writer one could not express themselves freely, or one could not even pursue their, their dreams of being an artist or a writer because the, the reality is so severe.
0: Another character in your um, novel is Sabri, Jawad's uncle. Mm-hmm. He fled Iraq during Saddam Hussein's era because of his affiliation with the Communist Party. He comes back for a short visit after the invasion and Jawad takes him on a tour of some of the historic sites in Baghdad like Mutanabi Street, the historic district and home of booksellers, painters, cafes such as the famous Shabandar Cafe. It's a gathering place for artists, writers in Iraq and you've written about that. Sabri is someone who remembers the past and in some ways he's registering what has become of Iraq after 2003 invasion and warns of a dark future ahead. He himself was rather pessimistic about sectarianism. This is Jawad saying about his uncle. What had taken place, he said, was not just an occupation, but the destruction of a state more than 80 years old. War and occupation were the final blows, but the process had begun with the destruction of the infrastructure during the 1991. Then there was the embargo, which had destroyed uh, the social fabric, and now the void created by the occupation was being filled by these sectarian parties because they had institution. The rhetoric touched people's heart, and they knew how to Exploit the Political Climate. But my uncle added, the history of secularism in Iraq runs deep. Why did you put this character in your novel?
2: Look, I mean, there are characters like that, even in my, in my own life, who are of a certain generation and who know history very well and are very perceptive and insightful politically. One important thing why I put this character in, because I have a soft spot uh, for the political dissidents who in the 70s stood up to Saddam Hussein and his dictatorship when most of the world was cheering him. And those, you know, human beings, and I've met some of them in Germany and elsewhere, who paid a really heavy price. Their lives were destroyed. Their relatives were imprisoned or killed. They went to the north to fight in the mountains and then left either to Syria or Yemen or Germany. These are people who stood up to a, a vicious dictatorship. And in a way, they also provide us with a different memory because one of the effects of Saddam's dictatorship and the invasion and this new chaotic regime that we have is really a massive amnesia of history, of knowing kind of the genealogy of the present moment. I'm not saying that only the dissidents who live abroad can, but in a way, sometimes those who left and are abroad have a less clouded vision of, of history. But he's also someone who, you know, was a political figure, was was politicized at a very early age, and coming back after 30 years to Iraq, which which happened to a lot of dissidents, are just... Horrified, of course, because the country they left with all of its problems was a largely secular, functioning country, and they themselves fought for a secular democratic society, and they come to see a society where sectarianism and religiosity has so penetrated every aspect. So it's a mixture of anger, but it's also kind of an elegy of of a of what could have been.
0: For me, Sinan Sabri represents someone who holds the history of Iraq.
2: Yes, I mean that, that's what I was trying to say in terms of amnesia because we we all need to be reminded of at least of a different alternative narrative of the history of Iraq. So in a way he is because he fought and he has that credibility that he stood up to Saddam Hussein, but also he represents this important segment of Iraqi society, of people who were victimized by dictatorship but they were wise enough not to support invading Iraq and occupying it and did not have were not vengeful and, and could distinguish between true liberty and just another imperial adventure.
0: Even though he has the opportunity to come back and live in Iraq, he decides not to. He decides to stay in exile.
2: As so many others did. I mean I was just reading about Sadly, the current regime in Iraq, of course, is so inept, but also it deals very suspiciously with, with a lot of the Iraqis who want to return and help build the country because it's such a corrupt regime that actually thousands of Iraqis who wanted to return and to help work or rebuild the country, irrespective of how they viewed the war, were, were barred from doing that. And in a way, it's too painful. So many Iraqis who returned after 2003... You know, could only return for a few days and weeks and just leave because they also realized that the Iraq they had in mind was destroyed. And there's another realities for those of us who leave and live in another country for 20, 25 years. And it's difficult to kind of just cut everything off and go back to the unknown. In a place also where, sadly, you are not welcome. I mean, the, the political establishment there, the political elites, and even some of the intellectual elites are not welcoming of, of outsiders. This whole rift between inside and outside, which was entrenched during the Saddam years and later, still exists in a way.
0: Sin Antoon is an Iraqi poet, novelist, scholar, and an associate professor at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at New York University. The Corpse Washer is his second novel. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
2: that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.